What up, all you beautiful Misfits and Rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 121 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I spoke with Drifter Dave, aka David Christopher. He's an expat living in Fongya. And for those of you who've been following me on Instagram, you'll note that I'm in Fongya now. However, this episode was recorded when I was in Thailand and had been connected with him via a mutual friend of ours. Anyway, Dave is a really interesting man living here in Phong Nha. He was in the Vietnam War. He's decided to retire here in Vietnam. He decided to retire in the place that was the most heavily bombed place during the Vietnam War. And he owns a little pizza joint. And he just makes pizzas and enjoying his retirement as an expat here in Phong Nha. Throughout the story, we learned that Dave has been looking for an old friend of his, somebody who he served with during the Vietnam War. He was a Vietnamese man who was a mechanic on his base, and he had a very good relationship with somebody he considered a very close friend who he just completely lost touch with after the Vietnam War. And then in coming back over the years, he spent trying to search for this friend of his and to no avail. So I'm asking you, the audience... If anybody out there is interested in this kind of thing, trying to research and find people online or whoever you do that, we could use your help in finding Dave's friend. His name is Homok San. He was from Bang Hoi, Vietnam, the Khan Hoa province. I'll put all this in the show notes with his photographs, his full name and photographs. And if you're somebody who's interested in, in this kind of thing, looking for people that others can't find, we would sure appreciate your help. It would be awesome if you could help Dave find his lost friend. Um, and let him know. I'll put Dave's information again on this page that you can reach out to him if you have any leads about where this individual might be. Be super rad if we could find Dave's buddy, Homak San. He's been looking for him for a long time. If you're a first-time listener, please pull out your phone at the subscribe button. If you like this episode, please rate it and comment on it afterwards. That really helps me in the ratings on iTunes and and gets this message out there. If you haven't yet purchased a Misfits and Rejects t-shirt, please go over to misfitsandrejects.com backslash shop. Grab a shirt. They're awesome. Really comfortable shirts with just Misfits and Rejects blasted on the chest. I'd appreciate the support and repping the Misfits and Rejects message. You know, lifestyle design. Let's decide to make our lives the best that we can in the way that we want. So thank you so much for joining us today on this episode with Drifter Dave, aka David Christopher. Please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners... A lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today on the episode, I have David Christopher, a.k.a. Drifter, a.k.a. Dave, who lives in Vietnam. He's a Vietnam vet. He just recently took over a pizza parlor for an older Vietnam vet. And I was introduced to him by a mutual friend of ours, Leslie, who will be on the show next episode. And I thought it'd be cool to bring him on because you the war is still something that you know Hollywood makes movies about, and I think the younger generation knows about it, but doesn't really know about it. You know, war times I think have changed for a lot of us since with technology we have drones and whatnot. But I thought it'd be cool to bring him on and just kind of talk about his experience in life in war and where he's at today. So, Dave, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Chapin. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you, man. Thank you for joining me. Um, you know, you are now living full-time in Vietnam. 
you're 66 years old and you were a career hairdresser back in Pittsburgh for a lot of years. What did your life look like, you know, growing up? Did you grow up in Pittsburgh? Yes, I grew up in Pittsburgh, uh, moved around quite a bit, uh, a couple of different schools, but graduated from Montour High School out in Robinson Township. And uh, shortly after that, me and a friend joined the Army. And uh, after basic training, we went our separate ways. We both ended up serving in Vietnam and uh, both had... uh, different experiences. He was a door gunner and I was in uh, logistics and supply, but we did keep in touch while we were in Vietnam and I did get a chance to visit his base, but I didn't get a chance to meet him while he was there. So now you were, you, you, you joined, like you signed up, you weren't drafted at 18. Uh, no, I, I, we enlisted it. I was 17 when I, when I joined. And, and what, what was the motivation? Uh, you know, it was economical because, you know, at that, at that time, there wasn't a lot of jobs. I wasn't going to college. I had no aspirations to go to college at that time. So we were both kind of just, you know, bumming around, not doing much of anything. And we both looked at each other and said, hey, let's, you know, join the Army, uh, get a little experience in the world and uh, maybe get some, you know, uh, money put aside for, you know, through the GI Bill for education later on. And that's what we did. Now, just so the audience can understand the time in which you joined, was there still full-on battle going on over there? Because I think history is probably oh, yeah. for a lot yeah, of people. They, so. Well, yeah, uh, the, the, the most famous and deadly part of the, the war was the, the Tet Offensive of 1968. But there were also uh, lots of casualties beyond that, all the way up to the, uh, to the end of combat operations in 1973. And including the the portion the two years after that, uh, that the the advisors and some military personnel were still here till 1975. Interesting, man. So I think that it's interesting then to ask this because obviously there you you lived through a lot of the media coverage of the Vietnam War, and then you said it was economical to jump in and, and go over there and do this, but still, like that's a pretty bold decision to make after I would assume you saw probably the horrors of what was going on over there. Well, yeah, we, you know, we grew up watching, uh, you know, the six o'clock news and seeing the war right on television, you know, during dinner time. But uh, you never really think that, oh, I'm going to join the army. And then the next thing you know, you're, you know, four or five months later, you're going to Vietnam. It wasn't on our mind at that time. But that's, you know, that was going to be our destiny. Interesting. Interesting. So then, yeah, you get shipped off to Vietnam. What was your first impression then when you got there? Uh, the first impression was uh, landing on the uh, the tarmac at Cameron Bay Airport. And I looked out the window and saw lots of people in black pajamas and conical hats. All the same, the same outfit that they used to uh, train us in, in uh, at jungle training you know, which was a requirement before going to Vietnam. And the, and the, the cadre was dressed in black pajamas and conical hats, you know, to, as the opposition. And when you look out the window, you see everybody in black pajamas and conical hats. You think, oh, my gosh, that's the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> but that was just the, the national, you know, that's just part of their, their national dress, you know. Interesting. And so you took care of logistics. So what was your day-to-day like as you were getting um, indoctrinated over there? Uh, well, after a short uh, run-up of 
reception area and flying back and forth to different places uh, in the chain of command. You know, you have to go to your battalion, back to your company and all that, you know, back and forth. I got settled in at a very small base off of Highway 1 that uh, was a restricted base. You weren't allowed off that base because of, uh, you know, enemy activity. But I was I was t- uh, tagged to drive 12 kilometers about every two, three days over to Cameron Bay to the depot there to pick up supplies for whatever they needed for the for the uh, vehicles, you know, the trucks that were, you know, used, used to support the, uh, the, the missions there. So I would uh, get the requisitions from, from the, um, at the motor pool and then go over fill out the forms and go out to go over to the depot at Cameron and and turn them in and whatever things that they had on hand, they would give me then. And then sometimes I would have to come back a day or two later and pick up different supplies, carburetors, distributors, spark plug, whatever, whatever the case may be. Wow. Now was that 12 kilometers stretch the longest stretch of your life? Was it really sketchy or was it pretty? <laughs> well, you know what, when you, when you're 18 and uh, you're, you know, you're bulletproof, you don't even think about that stuff, you know, I, and, but I guess at any, any point in time, you know, you could have been a target of, uh, you know, booby traps or something on the road or just an ambush but you, at that time you just don't think about it you got a mission you just go do it and and although we did have to you know get orders draw weapons and and uh go through checkpoints and whatnot it's just not something that was on the you know the forefront of our minds at the time interesting so it's did you your overall experience how would you describe your overall experience during those few two years you were there uh well, I was there for uh, basically a year, but it was times of absolute boredom interspaced with times of absolute terror. You know, when you would at two o'clock in the morning, your base would get shelled or mortared. You know, you're disoriented. You're you know you, you don't know what to do. You jump out of out of your bunk and run run to your uh, you know your your duty station, grab your weapons and whatnot. And uh, other times it was just pure boredom, you know, hot, dusty, dirty, doing your job. And then, uh, and there was fun times too, you know, with the guys, you know, we had parties and different things like that. Interesting. How, um, I mean, after you come out, you hear a lot of people have, you know, bad dreams and bad memories and PTSD. Did you have any of those sorts of symptoms or feelings? Uh, no, I didn't really have any, cause I didn't have really a lot of, um, no real combat experience or anything like that. I did have one incident of, uh, we were, uh, it was a friendly confrontation. I don't know if that's what you want to call it. We were in an automobile accident. We were in a truck accident with a motorbike and we were held hostage for a couple of hours by locals, local gangsters who were trying to extort money from us, you know, to pay for the, the motorbike. And which we didn't have, you know, we didn't have money on us or anything like that. But uh, they had they had guns and and knives, and you know they wouldn't let us leave. They confiscated our our IDs and everything like that. We were left there with no vehicle because our vehicle had to take the the accident victims to the hospital. Uh, so we were there for I think about three hours, me and my uh, my partner, and uh, and it wasn't until a 
a MP from a near, the nearby checkpoint, which was about two kilometers away, had heard about the incident, and he came came to our rescue in a, in a with a jeep with an M60 on the back. I don't know if you remember the the movie Rat Patrol. They had those pod mounted M60s on the back. Yeah, of course. Machine guns, and he come flying down the road and pulled up and told us to get in and. I, I said, hey, Sarge, these guys got guns. He said, and he, he put one in the chamber. He said, they ain't got one this big. <laughs> wow, that's wild. <laughs> I said, oh, it was wild. And we jumped in. We were so happy, you know, to get the hell out of there. <laughs> and his name was Sergeant Miller. I remember it was like it was yesterday. And he had a band on his on his uh, steel pot that said, Miller the Killer. I said, thank you, Sergeant Miller. <laughs> And then he took us over to the over to the base, and you know we had to fill out an accident report and all that. And, and it wasn't our fault; it was the the motorbike's fault. But that, that's the way it uh, fault hadn't hadn't entered into the uh, the equation at that point. They were just interested in getting compensation for the for the guy that wrecked his motorbike. Yeah, that still happens today, man. I mean, I've definitely been at checkpoints in Mexico and had the federales sitting there with guns saying, you owe us this amount of money. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, uh, no, I don't. But that sounds And, a bit and more here scary. in Vietnam, here in Vietnam, they, they, you know, you think that, you know, you ha- well, we, in the West we have the, you know, don't leave the scene of an accident. But in Vietnam, they have a 24-hour rule because, you don't. most communities are local. And if you get in an accident and hurt somebody or kill somebody, all their families there. So you have the option to flee and return 24 hours later to turn yourself in. <laughs> you know, the, the family and friends are going to uh, be quite emotional. That's actually a really good point, Dave. Thank you for bringing that up. I've, we've, I've heard this for years being on the road and I, and I totally have seen situations where it's not in the person's best interest. If you come from a, a place like America or Europe, where you stay at the scene of the crime, like you need to leave. You know, and if you feel like you need to go back to check on things, like maybe do that. But like, yeah, definitely that 24 hour rule, I think, applies to any third world country. Like get out of there, even if it was your fault and then come back if you feel that right. compelled to mm-hmm. do it. Um, interesting. So then you got out and you went back to Pittsburgh directly or what was what did you do right after? Uh, well, no, I had a, I had another 18 months to serve when I returned on my on my three year stint. And I served the uh, the remainder of my time down at the uh, 82nd Airborne in Fort Bragg in North Carolina. Okay. Just... Which going from Vietnam, you know, where everything was kind of casual and laid back to going to a unit that was very, uh, what they called strac, you know, everything was spit and polish and very regimented was, that was, you know, culture shock again, getting back into that military groove. Because when you're in Vietnam, being in Vietnam, you know, the, the, the joke was you could do what you want because what are they going to do to you? Send you to Vietnam? That's, that's the worst thing they could do to you. You're already there. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. When did you um, discover your, I guess, passion or you were good at um, cutting hair? Because you owned a salon for a lot of years. Yeah. I Well, I, I got out of... Uh, the service. I spent some time as an electrician's apprentice, and then I moved back to Pittsburgh, and I was working in a steel fabrication plant. And friends of mine, uh, they were having a party. I said, "Oh, I've got to get my hair cut for for Christmas," at the time. 
and they recommended this guy. So I went there, got my, I was getting my hair cut and he was a, he was also a veteran and he had gone to school on the GI bill. And he said, Hey, you know, you got the GI bill coming to you. Why don't you think about going into uh, hairdressing? And uh, you know, I was working in a steel fabrication plant and it was dangerous, dirty overhead cranes and, you know, different things like that. And then I'm thinking, yeah, standing behind a, a chair, making uh, pretty girls look prettier. That yeah, that's that's a nice uh, uh, different uh, approach to what I'd like to do with the rest of my life. So I signed up and uh, went to uh, Pittsburgh Beauty Academy, graduated and got a job, and that was that was it. And it was been a good uh, it was a good vocation for me. Because I I didn't want to be stuck in something like an office job. I'd get bored at that. And my uh, hairdressing career was seeing a lot of people, different people every day. Some of them becoming good friends of mine. And uh, because you do get close to your customers, they come in weekly, some of them. And, you you know, you get to know their families, their extended families. And uh, you go to their, you know, to go to their Christmas parties, you meet their, you know, their, their children. And I was doing third generation children by the time I, I retired, you know, people that brought their kids in, their kids were having kids and I was cutting their hair. So, and it was great for me. Do you consider yourself an artist or is this something that, you know, like anybody can just go pick up uh, and scissors and do? There was. Now there was a little bit of art involved. I had a I had an eye for hair cutting. Um, some people are good at hair coloring. Some people are good at permanent waves. Hair cutting was my thing. I had always had a knack for that. So that that was uh, probably my forte more than anything. I got better at, at at the other aspects of of the business, but I never did get into like the uh, you know nails or massage or any of those other portions of the, you know, parts of the business that are, you know, also equally part of the, the vocation, but I never got into those. I just stick strictly st- stuck to uh, hair cutting, coloring, highlighting, that kind of thing. That's so interesting. I mean, I mean, yeah, I would never consider all those aspects being some people excel and others don't. Um, so you were the you felt always most comfortable cutting hair, but then you obviously did the coloring and stuff like that. What was the hardest part about the coloring for you? Uh, color. Well, my color vision is not really great. You know, okay. uh, yeah, really with the pastel. <laughs> not colorblind, but color deficient on the on the really uh, pale ends. You know, the red and greens are uh, really hard for me to pick up in the, in the pastel areas but that was never really much of a problem with uh hairdressing because it's you know browns and reds and blondes so uh but that was yeah that that came as a uh that was a learned learned aspect you know i got over the years of 40 years you learned to learn to do it and i was i was good at that also so did um you have a family and children that you supported with this yes i had uh, oh yeah, I had uh, I was married twice and three children, uh, two to my first wife and one to my second, and uh, both of them were in the industry. And uh, but I think of all the, neither of them are in the business now. And I think of the probably 120 people that were in my class at uh, beauty school, 
I, I bet you there aren't a handful that went all the way through and finished their careers because they, it's just a, a career that you get, uh, you get detours along the way, especially with women. They, they get pregnant, have families, they get out of the business and it's hard to maintain a clientele when you're not available, you know, when you're not there, when you don't have availability. Yeah. Did you ever think about taking this on the road? You know, I know you had your family, but like a lot of women and men I meet on the road are able to obviously cut hair and and do hairdressing type of things anywhere in the world. I mean, it's kind of a nice skill to have and you can take it and make money pretty much anywhere. Did you ever consider maybe making that more of a lifestyle for yourself? Uh, You know what? I was, I was, after 40 years, I was done with hairdressing. You know, I had done most everything that I wanted to do in hairdressing. So there weren't any real uh, challenges there for me. And now with the, the pizza business and the, the pizza restaurant, cooking was always like a nice a thing that I really did for fun and as a hobby. So this has been uh, something that's more interesting for me to do is get into, uh, into cooking. And I, I still cut hair a little bit for friends like Leslie. Occasionally she'll, you know, beg and plead for a haircut because I guess going to a third uh, uh, hairdresser that doesn't speak, speak your language and, you know, or English as a second language is a challenge sometimes. I can just picture that, you know, the animated hands, <laughs> and like the scissor, fake scissors, fingers, like trying to cut the hair. <laughs> That'd be hilarious. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about you making your way back to Vietnam. Why was that the choice to do? Like what, when was your first trip back? Let's say after Vietnam. After the uh, well, I first got interested. I first got interested in 95 when Clinton normalized relations with Vietnam and it was all over the news and everything. And I thought, yeah, I'd really like to go back because I had friends here that I, people that I had worked with Vietnamese and the country was always beautiful and I liked the food and I like, you know, it, like I said, it was a very beautiful country and it was always interesting to see how it developed and changed after the war. But when I contacted the state department at that time, they poo pooed the idea that said, Oh, they're, you know, the, the tourist infrastructure isn't ready yet. And a lot of the outside this, this major cities is dangerous. And so I just kind of forgot about it and put it on the back burner and I was planning a trip in 2003 with my children and not on a vacation to, they wanted to go to Sicily to where their, their mother's family's from. And, uh, that fell through. And while I was doing research on other options, Vietnam came up on the, on the, the search engine. And I said, maybe it's time because I was, I was uh, divorced at the time, you know, single and, uh, not, my children were grown then. So I said, yeah, I, I, I could do this. I could go back to Vietnam. And that was in, so I arranged in 2004, November to return. Wow. That's interesting. So had you kept in touch with these Vietnamese friends of yours throughout the years of not being around? Uh, no, it, it was almost impossible because once, once our, my base closed, the guy that I worked with, his name was Ho Mok Sang. He was a local guy and we got to be really good friends because I worked with him. And he was, he worked in our motor pool as a mechanic and changing tires, fixing tires. And oftentimes I'd have to drive him home after work because he would work late beyond when the, the work, the workers shuttle would take people home. So I would oftentimes be, uh, 
have to be the one to take him home, which was about, oh, six, six or seven kilometers away. And so I'd, I'd get there and I'd meet, I met his wife, his kids, I knew the, the neighbor kids, and we'd all, often pass out, you know, oranges or candy or cookies, whatever, when we'd come there. So we became like little celebrities when we'd show up, the kids would be going crazy. And I always wanted to try to get in touch with him, but because of how the how the base was closed down, it was closed down in a matter of a week. We had really no inkling that our base was going to, what they called, stand down. Uh, they they furloughed all the civilian employees on the base, uh, the, the people that worked in the kitchen and the, the ladies that cleaned the hooches and and uh, Ho, who was the um, the uh, the mechanic. So we really, it was like an immediate disconnect. I, I never got a chance really to say goodbye. So when I did come back in 2004, I, I got the idea that I'd like to try to get in touch with him. So when I came back in 04, I made arrangements for 2005 upon my, as soon as I got back, I, I went back and started planning my 2005 trip. And I was going to go back to where I was stationed down near the Trang in Cameron Bay. And at that time I tried to, uh, I, I got a driver. I, I drove right to where his house used to be and it was gone. It was all bulldozed over and it was just farmland now. So we went to some local cafes. We put, put up posters. I had his picture, you know, I did some photocopy, put up some posters and also put uh, some ads in the local newspaper during the, uh, the Tet holiday, which is the biggest holiday of the year there. And I thought if anybody in that area knew him, they would be returning home at that time. So hopefully that somebody would see it in the newspaper, but up in three or four years, I did that and I didn't get any response. So he's either moved on or maybe he got to go back to the, got to go to the U S because he was part of the orderly departure program, having worked with Americans I don't know. I've just lost total contact. Have you tried Facebook? Uh, yeah, I've looked on Facebook, and there's some there's some uh, connect you know connect with uh, friends of Vietnam. There's also they have a Sunday evening television program where they run informational ads on the television program. I think it's Sunday evenings at eight o'clock, and I put a I put an ad on there with his with his name and his picture and my, my uh, email address and all that. And I, I've gotten a couple of contacts, but they're like scammers trying to, you know, wiggle money out of you. Oh, I know the guy I can find them for you, you know, uh, and they're just really trying to get money. Wow. What a beautiful story. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, I'd love, I'd love that. You, I hope you find him. Yeah. I would really love to find out what happened to him. Cause he was a great guy. He had a nice little family he had a really good sense of humor. He it, at the time he was trying to teach me Vietnamese, you know, words, numbers, and things like that, and uh, and he, he just we just connected on a on a nice you know nice level. He was a few years older than me. I think he was in his mid twenties, and I don't know the story about why he wasn't in the military at that time. Maybe he had uh, health issues or something like that. But well, maybe the audience can help. Maybe uh, if it's okay with you, we'll put his name in the show notes. 
And, uh, you know, obviously people can con- make, leave a comment and maybe they can jump on board and try to help us help you find this gentleman. So audience, uh, we'll yeah, his name was, show notes. It, okay. His name was Ho Moxon, H O M O C S A N. And he was, he lived in Bangoy, Vietnam in Kanhoa province, just South of, just South of the Trang and North of Cameron city. Cool. Cool, and he yeah. was a mechanic. Yeah. All right. Well, this will be interesting to see what happens. Um, but yeah, man. So then you went back for that first trip, and what was that experience like? Mm-hmm. It sounds like you went back with your children the first time. Uh, no, I went back. I went on the um, on the dental dental mission. Like I said, I was a non medical volunteer. Signed up for a two week uh, tour, one week of uh, volunteer work, and then you got a one week of sightseeing. And that was all part of your the package, and it was uh, tax deductible because your your donations were part of the uh, part of the mission. So we worked at a little uh, little s- village outside of Da Nang called Haolin, and it was in a they set them up in a school school building, and like I said, we had six dentists, and there were twenty four of us total. And we saw about 600 children during that week. And then after that week, we went on our sightseeing portion. Now, I was involved with the uh, Veterans of Foreign Wars at the time. And there was a uh, a mission up in Hanoi called the JPAC mission. It was a joint uh, POW-MIA acquisition, you know, where they hunt for bodies and crash sites. So as part of my, my sightseeing, I wanted to go up there and visit the mission up in Hanoi. So I went away from the, the group went to Hoi An and up to Way city. And I broke off and, and flew up to Hanoi and, and visited the JPAC uh, mission up there. And that was really interesting to see how they um, investigate crash sites uh, where they, you know, uh, try to recover remains of uh, missing servicemen. Yeah, that is interesting. What kind of emotions were you feeling on that first trip? Anything interesting of note? Uh, well, it was, it was bringing back a lot of memories and uh, a lot of uh, feelings from, you know, back when I was 18. But then when I flew up to Hanoi, which was, you know, oh, here I am, I'm flying into the enemy territory now, the North, you know, and you fly into Nobai airport and at that time, you could still see bomb craters all around it, and I, I was really apprehensive about how the people up north were going to respond to seeing an American there, and that was really not much of a problem at all. The people have moved on since the war. They they don't look backward. They only look forward, and the only difference was the northern people were a little bit more stoic. They hadn't had... 10 to 20 years exposure to Americans. So they didn't have that interaction with Western people that the the Southerners did. And they were just like I said, a little bit more stoic, but they were very respectful, very kind to me. No, I never had any negative interactions with any North Vietnamese. And I did go to the mission for two days and got a, a briefing from the major there and got a lot of uh, information about uh, how they 
go about uh, justifying um, sending out, you know, a whole team to investigate a, a crash site, which, you know, spends probably millions and millions of dollars trying to, trying to get uh, remains repatriated back to the families. Interesting. Does that still go on today? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, J, the JPAC is uh, a direct, there's a, a command that's in station or that's based in Hawaii. The, um, oh, I forget what it's called right now, top of my head, but that's where they do the uh, DNA research. You know, they have the mitochondrial DNA from almost every MIA POW from the Vietnam War on record. And that's going through the a direct descendant on the female side. And they've collected all samples from all the uh, um, relations, you know, the, either a, a daughter or a, a sister or whatever. And they have that on record. And any time they find remains, they can match them up through that in, at the, uh, the base in uh, Hawaii. But they do have the JPAC still going on up there in Hawaii, up in Hanoi. And although a lot of the POW MIA uh, sightings and, and uh, incidents are over water, so those those are probably never going to be recovered unless a freak accident where they you know pull up a a plane or something from a a fishing trawler or something like that. But uh, they have to have. Uh, personal eyewitness accounts for anything that happened on land. Three different investigators go and check it out before they send teams out. Wow. And it's pretty, and the crash sites are usually out in the jungle somewhere, you know, up on a mountain and they have to send a whole expedition of, uh, porters that carry the equipment. They have medical teams they have, and then they got to go up there and, you know, mark off grids and sift through through debris and rubble and try to find remains or uh, artifacts from, you know, crashed planes or something like that. Have they made any, made any discoveries that were unexpected, like old pyramids, like Vietnamese pyramids or whatever the ancient cultures of Vietnam? Uh, not, not that I know of. I, I think a lot of the Chom uh, relics and things are more in the south than they are up in the north. Most of the northern people are, are Thai descendants, so I don't know that they would be the Chom, like the Cambodian type Lao descendants. So I don't know if they've gotten anything like that. The major was really more interested in talking about the the American uh, remains, and I had a friend who her uncle was a uh, MIA, and he was. Uh, I kind of asked him about that, and he said that you know all all cases are. Um, what do you call that? They're classified, and only uh, next of kin are allowed to to uh, get information mm-hmm. on ongoing investigations or sites or anything like that. That's really interesting. So this sounds like I mean they they probably do these types of things all over the world where Americans have been involved. Oh sure, yeah. Well, I think in Afghanistan, all those all uh, uh, MIAs have been recovered, but. Korea and uh, World War II, all over the all over the Pacific Islands, there's it's an ongoing thing where they find remains and repatriate them back to the families. 
And, you know, it's hard to justify spending a lot of money, you know, just to find a tooth or something. But on the other hand, if it was your father or your uncle or your grandfather, I think you'd want a little bit of closure. So I think it's something that the government does that's, uh, I think it's worthwhile. Absolutely. I want to circle back to um, your first experience going over there to uh, with that NGO, East Meets West Dental, mm-hmm. because I think that's a great opportunity right. for a lot of people that they have today. Um, I had Christy Nichols on, on the show who does that in various parts of Thailand, uh, Bali, and Central America, where she you know takes people into these small villages and they, they lend a helping hand in, in whatever skills that they have or whatever the, the town needs. Um, can you tell the audience a little bit about, you know, you were a vol- you're not a dentist, obviously, so you went as a volunteer, and, and what was that experience like through this group, and what was your responsibilities? Oh, it was great. I, I We met up in in Thailand and then flew over to Vietnam and uh, eventually ended up in Da Nang, and uh, I think there were 24 of us. The director's name, um, they work from a uh, a group called Global Dental Relief. And they, they're like a liaison team between they, – they round up in different countries and different parts of the United States. Uh, they put together teams to come. They, they'll announce an outreach at a, diff, at a certain point. Then they try to get dentists and, and non-medical volunteers interested and signed up to come over. And then they, they team up with the, with the local dentists that work full-time here in the uh, East States West, uh, dental program. And then they go out and do the, the work out in the field. And it's usually a week long. And then, and then they come back and, uh, go on their one week, uh, sightseeing. We were, we went, like I said, to Howland school and, uh, working with the kids was great. The other volunteers were from all over the world, uh, California, Florida, uh, up in Wisconsin, and we had a, a, a real diverse group that came together and bonded really well. And we were, you know, we just made friendships, and I'm still in, in touch with many of them now. And uh, it was such a great time, and the kids were beautiful. They just, you know, melt your heart, these little kids. And because uh, they're, a lot of times, they're getting their first taste of uh, dentistry, you know, they don't have any, and they get schooled in hygiene. They get a uh, take home packet with toothbrush, toothpaste, a toy and instructions on how to, you know, maintain their dental hygiene. And they did a follow up up there in Howlin about, uh, 10 years after I was told. So, uh, they went back to the same school and, and saw the next generation of little kids, and because uh, we saw kids from kindergarten up to fifth grade, I think. So. And so just so the audience understands, you as a volunteer, I mean, you're paying your way. That's like kind of a package deal, like an all-inclusive package. Deal. Right, right. We paid our, we, I, we all paid our way, own way. And part of the, the, the fees that were incurred go to purchasing supplies that they use during the, the mission because they go through uh, a lot of supplies, you know, just gauze pads and burr brushes and all the different things that you need to do dental work uh, and all the, the, you know, the cleaning supplies, the hygiene and the, the compressors that they have to use. They, they use hand pump compressors 
to uh, to run the the drills. You know, the, you you have to pump them up by hand. They have this like copper tank, and then the the air pressure spins the uh, the drills. Now that wasn't all of them. They did have some electrical drills, but we did have some of those hand pump because uh, some of the places that we get they they go to don't have electric and and running water and things like that. So they have to bring water. They have to bring uh, those mechanical type manual uh, opera, uh, manual pumps, manual drills actually to to work with. Interesting. So what does that cost? Like three grand or something like that to do that? It was around three. Yeah, it was around three thousand at the time, and that was fifteen years ago. So I don't know what what the cost is now. And roughly, I think half of that goes towards. But then you pay for your hotel rooms. You pay for not all your meals, but some of your meals were included. All your in-country flights and transportation were included with that. And for Vietnam, that's not a very, that's not an expensive portion of it. You know, flying and trains and whatnot are all fairly inexpensive here. Hmm. Now, so that inaugural trip, you know, obviously you, the bug bit you to keep going back, and you bit, you were going back for you know, pretty much every year it sounded like until you chose to retire there four years ago. Yeah. I I went back once a year for about three years. Then I started coming twice a year, spring and fall. And, and on my initial trip, I met a friend, uh, and she worked in a cafe across the street from our hotel and we stayed in touch. And here she ended up getting married to an Aussie guy and they moved, she moved back to her hometown, which is uh, uh, Phong Nha, is which where I decided to settle down up here. And she has a couple of businesses up here. And I came to visit all oh, about four years ago and helped out with in working in a couple of her businesses here. She has a couple of uh, homestays and hostels and a small uh, cafe. And I just did casual work, you know. Yes, yeah, so I, I decided I came up here and uh, in Fongya and uh, work, work in my friend's cafe and her in her hostel and homestays, and then decided to retire here That's and make great. it permanent. That's really cool. So you obviously um, you said you retired early, and was your choice to right. in, in it, Vietnam because it, of your early retirement, or? What, what? Yeah, I was, you know what, I, I, you know, it's so expensive to retire in the U.S., you know, everything, you know, and it keeps getting more expensive as you go, you know, uh, although my health care, which is, you know, one of the really uh, most expensive things back home, was covered by the VA, uh, which the VA healthcare system is fantastic. I love it. And I al- al- always go back, you know, when I'm home, I go in for my annual checkup and and all that, but, uh, you know, just housing, uh, cost of living is so high. Now Pittsburgh is not as, as bad as like California, New York or Florida, but it's still, everything is relative. How is the medical care in Vietnam? Uh, medical care here is, is pretty good. I, uh, gone to the hospital here once for a slight motorcycle accident and got some stitches and, uh, I was in and out in about 45 minutes with, uh, I think, 12 stitches and some antibiotics and uh, some painkillers, and it cost me about uh, $50 U.S. Yeah, that's great. 
which would have probably cost me that much in parking back up. <laughs> oh, I know. It's just crazy. It's just crazy. Um, well, that's really cool, Dave. I mean, for you to you know make that leap and decide to live over there, and you're up in the north. Is that correct? Right. Yeah, it's north central. Right. Yeah. Just it was is considered the north because it was above the the demilitarized zone. The DMZ was about two hours away from here, and this is one of the most heavily bombed areas of the of the war because the interdiction of the two Ho Chi Minh trails, Ho Chi Minh East and Ho Chi Minh West runs right through this town here where I live. And it was one of the most, uh, bombed areas of the war. And they're still finding, uh, unexploded ordnance here and they will probably for thousands of years, I'm sure. Oh, that's, that's crazy. I mean, yeah. So what, when you go hiking, do you have to be very careful of where you step? Oh yeah, you know, uh, yeah, you must stay on their trails and any, anywhere that they suspect uh, unexploded ordnance, they have it uh, marked pretty clearly. But you, you know, it was everywhere, and they have those little bomblets, you know, from the, uh, um, the 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 big bomb, the you know, the big thing opened up and the little bomblets dropped, uh, cluster bombs, and they're still finding them. Friends of mine, when they were building their their uh, their homestay here dug up uh, two or three of them. And there's a group called here called MAG, Mine Acquisition, Mine Acquisition Group. And they're all over the world uh, clearing unexploded ordnance. And you have to call them. They come and, and take it away, dispose of it. But, the, you know, the, the U.S. fleet was off the coast here at Dong Hoi, Dong Hoi Bay. And it was approximately 25 miles, which is within range, shelling range of the of the the warships. So there's still a lot of uh, big, big heavy ordnance that was, you know, from the big guns, from the battleships and whatnot here, buried in the mud because all those bombs were uh, they were dumb bombs made to to explode on impact. But you know they're landing in uh, six six foot of uh, you know. Uh, wet rice paddies so they don't go off and they think roughly 30 to 40 percent of the uh the munitions didn't go off on impact so there's a lot of unexploded ordnance here oh wow dude that's wild so what does your day-to-day look like nowadays i mean in retirement i know you just took over a pizza restaurant for an, an another vietnam vet who passed away recently Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, f- up until my until re- uh, I got the the pizza place, um, I was it was kind of a lazy retirement, not doing much. Uh, I would take day trips and go off on motorbike, you know, tr- trips along the Ho Chi Minh Trail or whatever. And then when I took over the pizza business, now my days are a little bit more regimented to coming in here and go into the market, picking up supplies, or driving in twenty. 25 miles into town to pick up specialty items at the, at the store there. But a lot of things you can get shipped to you on the local buses, which is a nice option that we, we have here. You know, you call the, call the local supplier and they put it on the bus and the bus drops it off right at your doorstep. So that's a, you know, it costs a dollar to do that, you know, just beyond what the cost of the supplies are. So, that is a funny system. We have that in Nicaragua too, where people just put it on a public bus and yeah, you just show up at the bus station and get your, your stuff. That's cool. One, one question I had, do you, um, your children come and visit you often? 
Uh, no, I, I talk to them all the time on, you know, on, uh, online or uh, FaceTime. Uh, my daughter runs the, her business, so she's, uh, she's involved with that. She, uh, my older son, he has four little children, so that's not an option for him to take up and, and come. Now, my youngest is uh, in his first year of college, and I've been after him for the last couple of years to come visit me here. And he's just finishing up. Uh, he'll, he'll finish in the spring of uh, 2019. And if he's not working, we're going to work it out that he's going to come to visit. But uh, I think he would really love it here to, to come and see the area and get a, a little bit bigger worldview. Absolutely. I think I'd like to come visit too and help you out in your pizza place. I've got quite a passion for making pizza dough, dude. I love doing that. So it'd be kind of fun. Um, you know, do you, how, how's your Viet, Vietnamese? Do you speak Vietnamese or are you not at all? Uh, I can speak a little bit. Now, the Vietnamese language is one of the most difficult because of all the different tones. They have six different tones. And if you, uh, people that speak Chinese, they have four tones in Chinese and six in Vietnamese. And the North and South dialects are slightly different. A lot of the words are different that they use. And a lot of their pronunciations are different. Uh, the, the northern pronunciation is a little bit more guttural and a little bit more harsher. And an ex- example of that is, uh, I'll give you an example of um, asking somebody, what time is it now? In the north, you would say, Biza Miza Zoi. And then in the south, you would say, Bia Mia Roy. So it's the exact same thing, the exact same uh, spelling, but you can tell the difference of how it's pronounced. Interesting. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, I barely learned Spanish in the last 10 years, so I can't imagine trying to take on <laughs> Vietnamese. <laughs> um, uh, and, you know, and all the different, the different tones, and, you know, my hearing isn't what it used to be. And so trying to hear the tones is really hard. So a lot of it is just context, you know, trying to pick up the context of what people are talking about. Right. If you could, you know, tell somebody who's listening who wants to retire, who's maybe at that retiree age and um, thinking about maybe going abroad, what are, you know, some advice or tips you could give them or some words of encouragement to maybe think or head out there and retire in that country that they want to? Yeah, I think um, certain countries would be easier Um I think in Southeast Asia, Vietnam has a little bit of a um, something. It's a little bit easier because their alphabet is is Roman letters. Where in Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, China, they write in script. So in Vietnam, the the, the language is written in Roman letters. So that makes it a little bit easier. Um, but it is not for people that are squeamish. You know, to go to some of these third world countries, you have to be a very casual, easygoing uh, kind of a person to fit in, I, I think. No, I agree. You, you definitely, um, I think a fear of bugs is probably not in your best interest or uh, uh, right. cold water. You know, do, you have, do you have warm showers where you are? Uh, yes. I, yeah, we have warm showers here and uh, I, got, I made sure to get uh, hot water added to the um, – to the pizza place for, for washing dishes. So that was a real plus. And I said, that's the first thing that went in was a hot water tank for the 
to wash dishes and, you know, for hygiene purposes. Uh, so, uh, but things are getting better here in, in, in rural Vietnam. You know, we're able to get uh, a lot of Western things and a lot of creature comforts. But, uh, you know, hygiene standards, littering is a problem. Uh, flooding is a problem. Uh, so certain things that, that might put people off, you know, bathroom issues for women. You know, when I first started coming, there were, I called them bathroom adventures. You know, when you go in and there's not a Western style toilet, there's a squat toilet. Mm -hmm. That's a, you know, that's a kind of a deal breaker for a lot of people. <laughs> but then I think once you get used to it, it's quite nice. Like I prefer the squatty pods. Yeah. They're awesome. <laughs> I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm a traditionalist. I like my pizza with pepperoni. I'm not a taco pizza guy <laughs> and I like my Western toilet. <laughs> Fair enough, Dave. Fair enough. Well, Hey Dave, thank you so much for joining us, man. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And, um, you know, Hey Chapin, it was, it was really, really, uh, my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, brother. We'll talk. Well, I'm going to try to come see you. So, and then for the listeners out there, let's try to get uh, Dave connected with his uh, old friend from Vietnam. So I'll put that stuff in the show notes and we can make it a group effort. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you, Dave, for coming on and sharing your story with us. And thank you, audience, for helping Dave find his friend, Homok San. He's been looking for him for a long time. It would be really rad if one of you out there could dig a little deeper or use the skills that you have or the interest that you have in helping people find people that they just can't find online or whoever you do it. It'd be awesome if we could reconnect these people or I just give Dave the peace of mind of knowing where he is and maybe he's moved on to the afterlife. We don't know, but we sure would like to find out. So if you could help Dave out, that would be awesome. Please remember if you're a first time listener, pull out your phone and hit subscribe rate, comment this episode. That really helps me in iTunes. If you haven't gotten a t-shirt yet, please head over to misfitsandrejects.com backslash shop. I'd be honored if you wore one. And please remember, I think you all are so very beautiful. If you ever want to reach out to me, contact me. I'd love to hear from you. Love to hear about your life story, where you're from, what you're doing, what motivates you to design a life in the way that you want. And maybe we could get you on the show and you could share your story with our audience. Thank you again. I love you. I appreciate you. Stick around for the next episode. Like I said, I'm in Fung Ya. I'm interviewing a lot of interesting people. So there will be a lot of interviews intertwined with other interviews that I've been capturing on my travels and around the world. Stay tuned. There's a lot of great episodes coming. Much love. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it, it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.